Hello, Hoopaholics. It's Coach Spins here from the Box and One. We said we'd be taking a little bit of a vacation here at the beginning of August, but we couldn't keep ourselves away. There's always good basketball to be talking about and, and really glad to have a, a second time guest here on the pod. Chip Jones. Back then they didn't want him. Now he's hot and they all on him. Chip, good to have you with us here. How's the summer treating you, my friend? It's been great. I've been, you know, getting ready for the new year. We finally get our little break after draft season when our our two month panic or whatever it is that we're, you know, the hot, the hot subject. And now we're taking the break and, you know, getting to chill and watch obscure prospects. It's really fun. Yeah. What's uh, what's better than that, right? Watching obscure pra- prospects. We're, we're such draft sickos. I know Ma- that's what the what Maxwell Baumbach friend of ours always says draft sickos who dive in as deep as we do right now, but Hey, that's what we do when, uh, when we're bored and looking for things to fill our time. So chip, it's New Year here on the podcast, as I say. When when we reset, we take that break after summer league. That tends to be, to me, the starting or the end of one cycle and the starting of another. So with this being year two of the podcast, we're shifting things up a little bit. We used to start by asking a question that's essentially, do you foul up three at the end of a game? Basketball philosophy question. We're doing a different one this year, and you get the privilege of being the first person to give us an answer right here. You ready? Absolutely. Right. I'm going to I'm going to start off the year with some uh some some hating, some maximum level hating here. <laughs> I go for a 3 just because every year March Madness, I'm subject to a team being down like 3 points with like 2 seconds on the clock and hearing the commentators say, "You don't need a 3 here." You sure. could go for the two. So just despite them, I'm going to go for the three every time. So Chip, let me let me set the stage for all the listeners here and the scenario with this one, because because I know you're you're answering this one, and I think we are in agreement. But uh, I want to make sure everybody is is on board with us with the question. So here's the scenario: it's 18 seconds to go. You're down four. Full court inbound, and it's your ball. You've got one timeout remaining. All right. So the question is really, do you go for a quick two to try to cut that deficit to two, or do you go for the three-pointer? And you're on team three-pointer here? Yep. And, and what's the what's the reason or the rationale for that? Um, you know, I, I just, you know, you got to go for it. I think I've seen too many times, I've been burned too many times by teams that go for the quick two and then can't get it. But I will say if there's like, someone you could potentially foul that's like a horrid free throw shooter on the other team that could motivate me to go for the two if i can just like wrap up ben simmons as soon as they inbound it then i would probably change my answer right i think that there's other parts of this too with levels of play right yeah like the higher level of play you are the more you might maybe need the three because it's yeah. likely to turn it over less likely to miss their free throws etc cetera, etc cetera. when in high school or it's just the level that i coach at right now yeah, I'm, I'm probably taking the two, taking the points and banking that something's going to be able to happen, that since I still have one timeout, we can get through any type of situation that uh, might be a little bit uh, unforeseen. But that's going to be our question for the year. And, and again, this comes from watching a bunch of March Madness and all the college games on Synergy, late game situations, where every commentator says, you don't need a three, and then the team takes the quick two and pretty much ends up losing. Every time. It happened a lot. Every time. It never <laughs> works. I, I don't know if it ever works. But uh, anyway, the, the real reason Chip and I are getting together today is to go over two things here. One is a discussion on what we look for, how we watch film, kind of a general philosophy question in regards to prospect scouting in the draft. And the other, because we are those draft sickos, we've got to talk about some of our favorite deep sleeper candidates way ahead of this 2023 class. Um, I think the best way to start is with the philosophy and, and really the reason why I wanted to dive into this. Cause I, I don't know about you, Chip. I get a ton of questions around this time of year from yeah. people asking about how I watch film, right? Like where do we get our games from? How many of them do we watch? Do we watch full games or clips? What are we looking for in a prospect? Like I'd love to open it up to you first and hear like, what's your process if you, either hear a name of a guy that you've got to check out or you're just looking for a blank slate somewhere to really dive into to start. How do you really begin that process? 
Yeah, so I'm uh, I mute every like I try and mute every prospect name on Twitter to get like no priors from other people. So I'm very much a go on my go on my own kind of figure it out at my own pace. So um, I, I get my games on Instat usually. Um, identifying prospects is like generally looking at kind of the top high school guys coming in that are like some of the more obvious picks, and then you know looking through statistics as the year kind of progresses and at this point looking back to like past years and kind of look at the you know who kind of pops statistically and then you jump in kind of you know stats to identify a guy and then film to evaluate them sure so you go kind of reputation or if there's anything that you've heard of them first and then stats to back it up and say ooh what's interesting here what am i going to really be looking for and if it's interesting enough to merit a follow up on film then you'll dive in and try to see if that type of prospect works and, and fits with uh, really the passes the eye test, I guess. The yeah. Right yeah. That, that's pretty similar to, to how we do things, to be honest with you. Um, you know, a lot of times we, we keep a database of guys that we know we need to be monitoring. I think that's up to 540 names right now for next year's draft class. And no, I'm not watching full games or, cl or clips on every single one of them, but a lot of it is younger guys or different, recruiting classes that come through and you know you need to monitor them and add them to your database and your watch list then i like to look at at different stats different things that stand out whether it's from aau basketball and uh, and that's really an indicator for me of hey that guy was one of the most efficient with the ball in his hands he's a great shot blocker at that okay maybe he might be a rim protector earlier on in his career so let's familiarize ourselves with him as a potential one and done uh prospect or a guy who would be on a college floor early on in his career. But I think stats are a great indicator. Uh, are there any that jump out at the top of your head as things that you really look for and say, if he's got a, a positive trait here, if he you know tests well in this particular statistical category, I'm going to want to automatically follow up and watch film on him. Yeah, I would say for me, I'm a big, I'm a big, I like to keep the ball moving. So I'm a big assist percentage guy. And then I'm also like, a big um, kind of like unassisted rim attempts. So like if people are getting to the rim on their own and they're like moving the ball, that really kind of gets me excited. And and height, that's my favorite statistic is height. I'm a, I'm a, I'm a guard hater. I, I want a bunch of forwards. So so you you and Masai Ujiri are uh, making, yeah. making friends up there in Toronto. Hopefully. <laughs> yeah, I, I think, look, the – Film in, in height is always so strange to me because, and and that's, it's probably why so many teams aren't giving up on in-person scouting, despite all of the technology that's available at your fingertips is roster height can be misleading. Uh, seeing somebody up close, they play bigger or smaller than their actual height may indicate. They have long arms. And last I checked, a lot of these rosters and websites don't list wingspan. Yeah. out there for guys so you know it's really hard to know exactly what type of of physical shape a prospect who's six foot five is really going to be not just their playing style but yeah uh, you know how they how they look who they guard on a floor uh chip i i'll throw one question for you out there about just my process when i do watch film and i reach that point it's the first time really watching for a guy I always start with the athleticism, right? Some of those, those indicators of, of height and wingspan and things that we're already talking about. What position should they naturally guard based on their movement patterns, their size? But I really want to know, athletically, are they on one of three tiers? Are they a standout athlete at the NBA level where that can be part of what carries them to success as a pro? Are they an adequate athlete where they're not going to stand out by any means, but they're good enough to get by, or I should say not poor enough to be exposed. Uh, and then there's category three, the guys who athletically leave a little bit to be desired, which therefore frames the rest of how I watch them as a prospect, meaning they need to be super efficient, super impactful, or incredibly, incredibly skilled and have a high IQ. How does that rationale and the way that I frame things either shake up or, or jive with how you do on film or just make sense from a, a logical standpoint. Yeah. I mean, I think it makes a ton of sense. The two things I always like kind of preach when people ask me this is like the, the first two things I'm looking at are like kind of movement patterns. So like, like, like you said, the athleticism, and I'm also looking for guys who move a bit like differently than everyone else, you know, in, in the terms of like 
kind of their stride lengths or, you know, their flexibility. I'm really big on getting guys who are super flexible. I think that's kind of the, the poor man's path to elite functional athleticism. You know, if you can be super bendy around a screen and, you know, find some finishing angle that sometimes can go a long way in getting you what you need athletically and getting the most out of that. And then the other thing is like decision-making I'm big on. Those are kind of the two things, like the first game or two, I'm really just looking at like what types of decisions they make, what kind of patterns they usually go down and how do they move? Cause I think, almost everything a player does is based off how they're able to move and what type of decisions they can like, they want to make. And that can kind of frame like what they do, you know, based off, Oh, they make kicks to the corner because they, they really trust their passing and stuff like that. Right. Yeah. Well, I, I can attest to that as a guy who used to play basketball when I was in high school. I mean, I couldn't separate from freaking anybody. So I stood in the corner, thought about what I did and occasionally knocked down the, you know, pass that the teammate gave me. I was frequently screaming help when I was guarding somebody <laughs> on the perimeter. Like my athletic limitations certainly changed the way that I play and, and every decision that I made on the court. So I think that's a really elegant way of saying, like, yeah, you every prospect is a a function of their athleticism in some regard. They are a byproduct of what they are naturally able to do. And, and that's where I think this conversation becomes so fascinating because you and I both tend to look at the stats first. Yet a lot of times the athleticism can be more of a disqualifier and a, okay, this is not really a guy that we can be looking at as opposed to the stats. But maybe that's just because there's no neat way to look through the entire country and, and draft landscape and say, okay, here's a list of the 20 most athletic guys, or here are the guys that just don't cut it athletically. Like, you have to probably do stat first and then watch the film, and you can't watch everybody. Uh, but it, it makes me wonder, how many guys are we missing? Because I know you and I both try to do a lot of depth in this, but there's so many players out there, college, different levels of college, you know, G League pathways, overtime elite now, which is a, a whole different segment and story, international markets, like so many prospects to be able to watch, and yet we're so dependent on stats to really get that first taste to know who should we be looking at. Yeah, I think that's that's something kind of get underrated is like, like you said, I mean, there's like 550, 500 guys you have tagged. Like when people people kind of think like, how do you not know about like everyone if draft is your thing where it's like you need to be watching like at minimum like four to six games to really know a guy. And it's like that's like 2000 games. <laughs> like I feel like people can sometimes underestimate how much you would have to watch to like know every player super in depth. There's definitely a few that miss out like. I remember in summer league, I started watching Jamal Kane a bit. He was with the Heat summer league team. I was really mad I missed out on him because I think he's quite he was quite good. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and again, there's just there's not time to watch everybody. You got to go off of intel, or you know, you mentioned muting different words or, or prospects on, on Twitter and trying to go from that. Like, I, I try to keep an open mind to a lot of that because there are minds out there and people I trust not to blindly copy and paste their evaluation but to at least say, hey, that's a guy worth monitoring. That's somebody who, if he's on that guy's radar as being a prospect, it at least means that I need to check him out. Uh, so a lot of this for me is not borrowing evals from people, but having them point me in the right direction of who can I most wisely be spending my time watching. And again, Jamal Kane, I think a great example there. I didn't actually watch film on him until maybe seven to 10 days before the draft. Like yeah. that, was, that was the first time I'd actually, I'd heard of him, I'd, but there's a long list of things to do. And again, I got a full-time job and, and I'm coaching my own team here. There's, there's only so much that we can watch from this part-time view, but um, you've got to be really smart with the time that you do spend. And one of the reasons I think this is an important conversation, if anybody makes an impact on draft Twitter, it's not necessarily for getting the order of the top five right in the draft. That's, it's not that that's not challenging. It's just that everybody has their attention paid on it. Where we end up separating ourselves from others is by a, the discovery phase, right? Being the first one to a prospect who uh, might not necessarily have mainstream attention and then pushing the agenda in that direction. You know, I know you were a huge Vince Williams guy this uh, this draft cycle. Huge Vince Williams. And he ends up going to, to Memphis there. Great, great, great find by the organization. We can talk about the statistical indicators that kind of there's a trend that the Grizzlies look for 
with size, with, with skill, whatever it ends up being. Um, but I think that that was one of the reasons I enjoyed having you on the podcast this winter so much is because you do your homework, you spend some time in the weeds trying to find these guys, but ultimately that's what allows us to gain value from each other. Yeah, I definitely think so. I think there's a lot of, there's a lot of value in that and trying to, you know, be able to take in what other people are seeing. I think that that can really help a lot. And, you know, finding people you trust who you can talk to about prospects and bounce ideas. Cause like, even when you're going in depth, even on the top guys, like bouncing ideas off other people is kind of how you often can push your own logic and knowledge forward, you know? Right. No doubt about it. No doubt about it. So, um, are you a full game guy or a, or a watch clips guy? I genuinely think if you did not watch a single basketball game and just looked at stats, it would be better than watching clips. I think watching clips is literally by far and away the worst thing you can do. I, I despise it. <laughs> I, I hate the watch clips thing because you you get these really strong formed opinions off of like watching all the tagged pick and roll coverage clips from a player and then like I'll have watched like four or five full games and I'll see someone and I'll be like, oh, they definitely like watch clips because it's like some of the stuff they say sometimes it's it's a little off. And I think it gives you a really distorted, like weird view. And I think you don't necessarily get how the player plays in a game. And I think that matters a lot. Yeah. The, I mean, maybe it's the coach in me who was very much, you know, when I was learning how to be a coach and Synergy was available, like it was very easily and early ingrained in me. Do not watch clips uh, because, you know, if it, it's very easy to log on to Synergy and click the button of, okay, uh, pick and roll field goal attempts for Tyrell Terry. And you just watch those 32 makes. And that's the first thing you see. And you go, wow, this guy's got to be a top 10 pick. And that frames the rest of how you view that prospect for just because you had, you clicked that one button that one time, the first time you watch that prospect. So I think full games are always the way to go. Um, as I mentioned, I think time in the day is really challenging obviously you know if i'm putting together a film on jabari smith i'm watching clips to compile a lot of the clips that i will use in video breakdowns of him but i won't start getting those clips compiled or knowing what the strengths the improvement areas what categories i'm looking for until i've watched three full games um, yeah that is that is my litmus test i don't have time to watch that much more on everybody and I try to walk that line between quality and quantity, right? You want to make sure you're hitting on enough prospects so that we can find these sleeper guys that we want to talk about. And we will later on the podcast while also making sure that we nail the guys at the top end of the draft that everybody has their eyeballs on. So for me, I look for three full games and I go based on the game logs that I'll find online for which ones I choose. I try to find the best offensive output that I can find. I try to find one of the, lower offensive outputs where he act, the player actually played some minutes, not a six minute game where he, you know, barely did anything like that's not going to show me very much, but I want to find the best game, the worst game and that medium game, that one I can find that's okay. Statistically didn't pop off the page. What else does he do? And that helps me then set the list of okay, now these are the categories of three strengths, three improvement areas based on the stats of three games that I've watched. When I dive into the clips and the synergy profile, I may tweak that just a little bit, but at the end of the day, I think full games are the only way to contextualize everything. Yeah, for sure. No, it's, it's definitely similar. I'm, I'm looking at like Ken Palm ranking and just seeing like, what's the, what's the best team this guy actually played like a good amount of minutes against. And I'll just start out there and kind of, I feel like, it's uh, sometimes it can be a lot easier to kind of build a prospect up than to pull them down. Once you've seen like the, the best they can do, sometimes you're a little reluctant to like pull them down. You're like, oh, well, in this in this game, they did so well. And you can, you know, you, you fall in love with the, the positives and then you you're kind of refute. You can look over the negatives a bit. And I think that can be kind of tough. So I generally try and look at like what was the hardest time they had. And then I'll identify like oh, I think this player, you know, really struggles when they're forced out wide. So I'll go see, did they play against a team that runs like a very no middle system that's like trying to force them out there? I mean, like, okay, how did they react against like Baylor? Yep. Yeah, absolutely. Absolutely. Do you take notes while you watch? Uh, you have, uh, whether what system do you use for keeping track of your thoughts as you're watching? Um, so I'm a, I'm a note taker and a clipper. I'm a live, live while I'm watching clip. Um, 
So I, I will clip things and I have a kind of tagging dictionary to organize my clips. And then I will kind of tag in the title of the clip when I'm saving it will kind of be a note. And then I'm also like a note taker on like a notion page. Okay. Yeah. That's uh that's pretty similar. I'm the kind of the old fashioned notebook guy. A mm -hmm. lot of times when it can be, uh, sometimes I don't always have that with me. I leave it at home. So if I'm stealing a couple minutes at the office, I may go a little bit blind on the notes side there, but yeah, I try to, clip some things as I'm going and, and make sure I have a note of what that clip meant or where, where slash why I want to show it. So uh, Chip, anything philosophically on the process of watching film that you would want people who are either considering themselves amateur NBA draft scouts or hoping to dive into some of this in the future, what's one gigantic takeaway that they can get from you of this is really helpful and important practice while I'm watching film? Um, it's a good question. I would say the two things that I would recommend at the start is like one draft, like a lot of draft is just asking yourself the question, like why a ton, like, okay, they did this. Why, why did they do this until, and you're kind of just trying to answer all the questions you can come up with. And it'll be like, okay, they like finishing with their left. And so the right are why, why do they, oh, it's cause they like going downhill left, not right. Cause the, you know, they're left-handed or something. Right. And you just keep asking that question why over and over. And the thing I'd recommend is, especially if you're just kind of getting into it and starting, one thing that really helped me was like my first two evals I did for the, like this past cycle, like Chet Holmgren and Jabari Smith were like the first two guys I really, really tried to, you know, figure out. I watched like 20 games of each of them because like I had no idea what I was doing. So like I just was like, I'm going to watch literally every minute this guy's played so I know everything. Yeah. And I think kind of, you know, really diving into players that make you think and try and force you to learn new things can really help you a ton at the start. I think that's great advice. If there's one small thing I'd piggyback on top of that, it's know and understand team context, right? Like you had mentioned there, Baylor is a no middle defense trying to force everybody really wide on, on the perimeter and they sell out on help on um, you know, rotations where they stunt and, and trap the block, the box, like, knowing that stuff is really important and you don't learn it until you learn it, right? You have to be able to, to understand that. But if you just go in with the sole focus, starting watching film of nailing down a prospect, you will probably miss some of that. Why, right? A lot of the why isn't just I'm left-handed, I'm right-handed. I prefer this step back, move to my right, whatever it ends up being. It has to do with the opponent that you're playing against, and the context, the scheme, the stylistic tendencies of the coach you're playing for and your teammates. You've got to be able to contextualize all of it. The more you can add, the more accurate your information is going to be. It's really hard. And it takes a lot of time to build that up. Right? I'm, I'm lucky that this is year five of me doing, or year six of doing NBA draft coverage, and that I coached in college basketball for four years to the fact where like this was stuff I was interacting with on a daily basis. It takes time. It, it's going to be rough at the very beginning. You're going to have Mo Bamba first overall on your board over Luka Doncic. Like you're going to make some absolute insane F-ups. It happens. You learn from it. You move on. But don't be afraid to make those mistakes and learn as much context as possible. So. Absolutely. Fully agree. Chip, let's just do the real stuff of like why we're here, man. Like the fun part of all this, which is talking about the prospects themselves. Uh we mentioned that it, you know, we gain traction a lot of times by trying to be the the first to discover a hidden gem, somebody that we think is flying beneath the radar that we're a really big fan of. And I know you go deep in, into a lot of the dives on some of these guys, so you're the perfect guy to do this exercise with. So uh, for everyone listening or watching out there, Chip and I went back and forth over the last couple of days. We each came up with three prospects that we're going to bring forward here as potential sleepers, potential breakout guys. Maybe one or two of them are on a top 100 board somewhere. I think that this is a very, very niche podcast at this point. So if you're looking for analysis on Cam Whitmore or Nick Smith, we'll yeah. see you next week, folks. <laughs> this is, uh, we're going deep into the weeds here. Three of each. And we're going to have a small back and forth. Again, I know Chip hasn't done a full deep dive of film into some of the guys that I threw out there and vice versa. I haven't had the opportunity to watch three full games or a, a meaningful survey on every single guy on his list, but we're at least going to make the case for our guys and see 
with the context of the philosophy we started on, if it makes sense to the other person of why we prefer this prospect or, or why we're really high on them. So Chip, as the guest, you have the distinct honor of going first and setting the table for us. Who's your first guy flying under the radar? Yeah, so my first guy, I, I came into last year because so I'm going into my third year doing draft stuff. So this guy coming out of my first year into my second year, this was my big guy. I was super big on hyping up Isaiah Crawford out of Louisiana Tech. And he, the, for opening games against Alabama, he was phenomenal. He did great. And then, you know, one more good game. And then he hurt his knee and was out for the year. So we didn't get to see the breakout last season. But it's okay. We're back. It's a new year. So we're back with Isaiah Crawford. I still absolutely love this guy. He's phenomenal. Um, so he's a 6'6", 220-pound forward, 7-foot wingspan, super functionally strong. He moves really well. He's had two knee injuries at this point, which has kind of you know held him back a bit, and it's, it's really unfortunate, and that's part of why he's flying under the radar. But as a second-year player in 21 starts, he put up 12.5 points, 5 rebounds, 2 assists, 2 stocks, 50% on twos, 42.7% on threes. He's not a 40% three-point shooter. It's like a smaller sample size. He's not, he's not that good, but yeah. he's, he can shoot pretty well. Um, and I think that one of the big things with Zay is that um, obviously playing at Louisiana Tech, he was playing next to Summer League and Team USA superstar Kenny Lofton. And, um, you know, Kenny's a phenomenal player and they Shout played really well. Kenny Lofton. Yeah, I mean, Kenny's, Kenny's the best, right? However, for Isaiah, when Kenny was off the court during his one really healthy season, his usage jumped up to 27%. He kind of became that guy. On a 600 possession sample size, he was getting 40% of his attempts at the rim. He was shooting 70% on them, a .39 free throw late, so he's getting the line a ton and a 15 assist percentage. So, I mean, he really could run the offense functionally, and their offense didn't drop off a ton when he was kind of being that guy. I would say, like, the big thing with him is – his help defense is phenomenal. Just such great spatial awareness. And, you know, he's 6'6", 220, long arms, so he's a bit thinner. At the same time, though, he is insanely strong. He's had multiple clips that I've taken where, you know, a driver will be going past him and he'll kind of, you know, reach his hand out to try and get the, you know, disrupt their handle. And he'll get his hand on the ball and just stop the driver with his hand, like, full extension out just on the ball because he is so strong. Um, you know, he's, he's a Kawhi Leonard stan. So he, he definitely looks into that, like, you know, lanky, super strong, quiet forward kind of thing. And I think that's kind of where he, he kind of pushes himself. But I mean, great spatial awareness, great ground coverage. He gets ground co super quick. He's really strong. He's super switchable so he can guard up or down. And he doesn't, he doesn't overhelp, which is the big thing. Cause there's a lot of great uh, help defenders in college basketball and a lot of them overhelp and go anytime they can help, they will go. And look, I always think about breakout candidates as being guys who opportunity meets improvement, right? And it's hard to know whether a guy who missed the entire last season is improving what they're improving at because we don't have the immediate sample size to know what they should be improving at. But I think that opportunity is definitely there because A, he missed a significant chunk on basically the entire season yeah. last year. And B, Louisiana Tech is losing their best offensive piece and player. You mentioned his usage when Lofton was off the floor. I think that's a, an outstanding point and kind of a filter to be looking through of trying to see, okay, if the offense doesn't drop off, if this guy's been really effective when Lofton isn't there, then let's give this guy the reins and feel really comfortable that he's going to produce at a high level. Um, in translation to the NBA, athletically, in terms of what you've seen, does he belong? Is he in that top tier of elite athletes? Is he, uh, he's just out, you know, he blends in with the crowd. He doesn't stand out in either way or he's a negative. Yeah. So I would say he's kind of the player where it's like that we talked about, I touched on it earlier where that like flexibility really like is kind of the, the path to that elite functional athleticism. And I think that's kind of where he sits where he, I think the knee injuries, the bounce isn't necessarily like vertically. He's not quite at that point, but he's very quick. He's got a really good first step, super strong, and he's really agile. So, I mean, he's, I think with his like flexibility and the way he's able to kind of turn corners on drives and, you know, contest from behind. I think there's, a, there's like a, he's, he's teetering, but I don't think he's at that elite. I think that's too far, but he's definitely like very much in that he's going to athletically like belong above average. Yeah, he's, for he's sure. Above average. Yeah. And that's again, passes the first test with me uh, of something to look for. And the one thing that I hope does not get held against him is injury history 
it's just, it's a big bugaboo that I have. Uh, and it's going to be my segue into my first prospect to, to really throw out here, because I think that the reputation of guys who are injury prone when injuries a lot of times happen just by sheer bad luck. Like you can't, some guys are brittle. There's no doubt about it. I'm one of them. So I can attest to that, but it, it's unfair to give a guy that label just because he might get hurt once or twice in college at the wrong times. And, and that's where I got to stand up for my guy, Khalif Battle at Temple. Um, you know, I like to look for deep sleepers who have at least one signature skill for the NBA level. For Khalif Battle, uh, who's at Temple, that's, that's scoring. I mean, injuries really robbed him, though, over the last two years. And I think that he's fallen really far off of draft radars as a result. He's only played 18 games in the past two seasons. And I get it. One of those was a little bit COVID shortened, but it's not a very large sample size of productivity. But in those 18 games, 17 and a half points, 42% from the field, 38% from three. I think his shooting stroke is very, very real. Took a huge step up from, you know, the small sample of his sophomore year to last year, his junior year before ending due to injury. He's a really creative scorer, good size and frame at 6'5". Like, I, I think that he's going to explode. And he's, again, I want a guy who has a signature skill to be able to be that sleeper where I say, okay, he's coming from obscurity, but I still know he's going to be able to do this at the NBA level. You know, for Crawford, that might be help rotations and defense and strength. For Battle, that's scoring the basketball. I can see a universe where he – comes in and becomes almost like a Jordan Clarkson type of role. Just give him the ball, let him score. He'll create for others a little bit, but he's really out there to, to put the ball in the basket. And guess what? That's still a really, really valuable trade in the NBA. Uh, have you seen anything from battle and in, in kind of the, the times that you've seen him play, whether it's this year, last year, throughout your draft cycles that has caught your eye? Yeah, I mean, I think you have, a, you have it noted down here that the creativity, that's a really big thing for me as guys who, you know, in the NBA, it's a lot about drive and kick and, you know, pass and pass and pass. And, you know, you want creative problem solvers on the catch who can, you know, find a situation and find a solution to it. And I think Khalif is really good at finding those solutions at all three levels. And I think that goes a long way in helping you kind of get to that NBA value. Yeah. And part of the reason he can be creative is because he's a threat to score on all three of those levels. It forces defenses to guard you differently. Uh, and that's again still really, really valuable to me. I think he's going to have a great year. Uh, you know, knock on wood, he stays healthy because that's what this all comes down to. But if he's able to do so, I, I do have a, a really strong belief that he's going to be a, a strong contender to be drafted in a lot of expert boards there. Chip, number two, who we got? Yep. So we got Deron Holmes, the second from Dayton. He might be the, I think out of our, out of our six guys, he's probably the one that's going to pop up on those like top hundreds already. So he was the RSCI 38th ranked recruit in last year's high school class. So, I mean, he was a top four star guy, uh, went to Dayton, had a really productive freshman year. Wasn't, you know, good enough to, well, I think he maybe could have come out. This is my, this is my somewhat hot take, I guess, with Deron is, of the last year's like Mark Williams, Walker Kessler, Christian Coloco, kind of that like next tier center group, I actually like Duran better than all of those guys. Um, so I'm I'm a pretty big fan of his. Um, you know, he's 6'10, 220. He's very comfortable switching out of the perimeter. Um, really, really mobile, really agile, flexible, and other. I, I really, I really do value that a lot. He's very good at, you know, using that one dribble that you want to see from bigs to kind of, you know, get that, get those two steps and get that creativity moving towards the basket. And he's really good at that. A lot of, you know, DHO fakes. He uses his body really well to kind of shield the ball. And he's very good at getting these creative angles to find a finish. And he had 83 dunks as a freshman, which is like, a lot of dunks, especially for, you know, a freshman player. And then the other thing that I'd say it's really, really big with Duran is he's super mistake free. Like he does not make errors. He had a, a positive assist to turnover ratio and only two fouls per 40 minutes as a primary pick and roll defender, which is insane for a college freshman. That's Evan Mobley type shit, the combination of those two. I yep, I was actually looking on some some stat searches of uh, things, and the only the only players who came up that had the exact two point one fouls per forty was Evan Mobley and Deron Holmes were the only two who managed that. So sorry, I spoiled that big drop. No, no, absolutely no. It's perfect because it's the fact that someone else linked that immediately is good. 
Um, but I mean, that's the thing with Duran is like he can switch onto the perimeter. I, honestly, like the interesting thing with him is like with a lot of guys, like okay, you can play drop, but what else can you do? I actually think okay, you can switch, but can you really play drop? Because he's got a little bit of that kind of like he's only six ten, which I mean only six ten, but you know it's kind of like that four five hybridy kind of height where you're you're not fully sold. So I think that's going to be the interesting thing is this season, you know, he's probably going to be played as a center, but is he really going to cement himself as like, okay, this guy is actually an NBA center, but I mean, super mistake free, keeps the ball moving, really good decision maker. And he's very mobile. I mean, he's just a good guy to have out on the court for you. Yeah. And a a very good Dayton team too. He's got good players around him. Like Tamani Kamara, I think is somebody that, that deserves to be. Uh, you know, at least given some sort of a shout out. He's a good player. He's really crazy ball. at six eight. Love yeah, him. yeah, he's really good. But Dayton's offense with Anthony Grant at the helm there as the head coach, really good at using big men who can do different things on on both the interior and the perimeter. And that's where Holmes, I think, shined. You mentioned the playmaking, the lack of turnovers, dribble handoffs, reads for keepers, things that he's able to do within the flow of their offense while also spending time near the basket. Uh, he does a great job, Coach Grant, at letting guys play in both spots. It's how Obi Toppin really thrived, uh, and I, I think that Holmes doesn't have the same you know, jumper or perimeter pop necessarily of a guy like Toppin, not trying to make that comparison, but it does allow him to show the versatility of his offensive game in really important ways. I liked the way you said that about defense, of he can switch, but is he good enough to be in drop coverage? When we're talking about evaluating him this year, that's the one thing that I'm watching for is, is he going to be a rim protector at the next level? Because while he's switchable in some extent, I don't know if I'd want to play him as a full-time four. Yeah. And and there's there's a, a strong difference between those that I think gets overlooked. If you say that a big man is switchable, you might say, well, he can probably guard fours at the NBA level. No, that's that's not always going to be the case. And I think that the NBA game is trending more towards a smaller tweener of a three slash four at most positions, which makes it really harder to be a five slash four that then gets platooned into a full-time four position. Just because Mobley did it doesn't mean that it's going to be easy for other guys to do. Yeah, absolutely. I think, I think Duran's a really interesting one. Even if the, the thing with him that's interesting is, if he does figure out that, like, let's say that, you know, the drop stuff really comes along and he's like 230, 235, and he puts in that 10 pounds you can a year. And, you know, he really is like, okay, he's a center. Then all of a sudden he becomes like super interesting, like first round range kind of guy. But even if he doesn't, I think, you know, he's going to be, I think, like a little under 21. He's still young. And I think just with his positive decision making and like his kind of, you know, creativity, figuring things out and his athleticism he's a fun guy for a team to like take a chance on in round two and just be like, Hey, let's see what we can get out of it. Cause like he just makes positive decisions on the court and every coach is going to like that. Yeah. Now chip, I, uh, I did a study this past year looking at Christian Coloco and a couple other like second year bigs. Mm-hmm. Mark Williams is really the exception to the rule. So when a uh, American born, you know, non international prospect is over the age of 20, I think only two or three of them over the last decade have gotten drafted in the first round. Pretty much everybody else at that point in time, because it takes so long to teach a big man NBA style coverages and what you need for them to be a defensive anchor. You're either getting in with a four-year contract for a first round guy when he's a teenager, or you're waiting until he drops to the second round. So, you know, Holmes, incredibly productive, a guy that both you and I really like. I'm glad you brought him up here. I'll give you a spoiler. I just did a mock draft that's coming out a way too early mock draft. And like, you know, started with the lottery here. We're going to be going into full one through. uh, It's crazy to even do it. But I have Holmes as 31st right now. Like he's knocking on the door of the first round. But more than that, he's great. Like you said, great value for what he has there. And we talked about breakout candidates. You need improvement and opportunity. He's going to have opportunity. And over the final nine games of the year last year, 17-7, 17-7, two blocks, 67% from the field. Dynamic numbers yeah. and just a really, really good prospect. Yeah, just a, it's a fun guy to watch and a fun team to watch at Dayton no matter what. So it's yeah. going to be like you're going to have a good time watching him play this year no matter what happens. Absolutely. Well, I'll give prospect number two on my front here. Uh, Jameer Young, now at Maryland, spent the last couple of years 
at Charlotte. Kind of a deep sleeper guy that I've been watching. Uh, went to DeMatha, so have known about him since he was in high school and really liked his game then. I think part of the reason for it, and it's all about knowing your own biases and, and, and things of that nature. Like, yes, I want to root for DMV kids because I coach here in the area, but uh, I'm a sucker for guards with really deep pull-up range. It's just something that I've always fallen in love with because I do have this theory that if you're going to play with the ball in your hands and be a pick-and-roll creator, you need to force defenders to come up above the three-point line to guard you in order to unlock great playmaking and decisions to have that space in the lane. If you're a poor shooter and teams go underneath or sag off of you, you are a less effective passer and creator out of the pick and roll. So I think that Young uses the threat of his shot to make himself an adequate passer. I don't think he's great, but he's fine. He's about six foot two, but he does have that elite shooting touch. Catch and shoot really, really strong, about 37, 38% last year. Really good off the bounce as well. He gets to the free throw line, which a lot of times we talk about guys who are bombs away shooters off the bounce and only about 6'2". Like they don't tend to, to love creating contact. The fact that Young is getting there at a really high rate, it, that just warms my heart. Um, I think that there's also been a lot made about guys who are smaller guards necessarily. You know, how do you play bigger? What is it that you do to order in order to make yourself not be a target out there? And a lot of people look at dunks, right? Is somebody going to be in a below the rim type of finisher? I can't remember who it was on draft Twitter a couple of years ago, put out something. It's been a pretty widely followed theory, but guys who just never dunk the basketball at the college level have a really hard time panning out for success in the pros. I, I think on the defensive end, I mean, young as, as small as he is, he had like 0.5 blocks per game. He, he ended up with like 16, 17 blocks of the, on the year as a 6'2 point guard. That tells me that athletically, like there's something there to his game. And it pops a little bit on film. I think that he carried a really large offensive burden to the point where he probably wasn't doing uh, maximum effort on a, on a possession by possession basis on defense. But we talked about the ability to, to shoot the ball. We talked about how he, he thrives through contact and looks to seek it out. He's actually a good finisher too. 58% at the rim, 54% inside the arc overall. Good touch in the mid-range and off floaters. Really smart cutter when overplayed. That's something that I always look for. The counters, the things that flow in game action. When defenses adjust to you and try to take you away, are you able to still impact the game? Really, really smart cutter uh, in those circumstances. Transferred up to Maryland, a lot of people are going to be wondering if he can produce at the same level that he did in Conference USA now that he is up in the Big Ten. Last year against Wake Forest, 27 points, nine rebounds, four assists. I think he's going to be just fine. He may have a couple growing pains because there are a lot of physical, really good defenses in the Big Ten. But at the end of the day, I'm expecting him to be one of the best offensive producers on a, a, a good Maryland team uh, that I think flies a little bit below the radar. Play style that I love, productivity, passes the numbers test in a lot of different ways, captures my heart in the eye test. I'm in on Jameer Young. I respect it. I'll have to, I'll have to keep in mind <laughs> if he makes my list of like I, I to be a bit hyperbolic for a moment, there's like five guards a year I would draft. Otherwise, I'd rather die than draft a guard. <laughs> I have two forwards and a big here. Yeah, and and I think that, that that's actually worth diving into here because it's not that I disagree with that sentiment. It's that I know what I'm a sucker for. Um, and I also I think the right guard is the one that you have to be on the lookout for. Um, I don't think that I draft a lot of smaller point guards inside the lottery or at least inside the top 20, unless they're elite. Like go back and look at the last couple of years of my overall big board. It tends to be a lot of size. Um, Trey Mann, I'll throw him out there for uh, a second. I wasn't that high on him, like a late first, early second type of grade, not because I didn't think he was a really good player, but because I wasn't sold on kind of, you know, drafting a guard in that type of range. I would rather have a wing and a defender and, and somebody who I think can play multiple positions. Good for man for you know kind of proving me wrong a little bit early on in his career. 
But I think that that's what you have to be on the lookout for when you're evaluating guards. Is this that one guy that's the exception to the rule? And I don't know if Jameer Young is that yet, but he is at least not out of the, the discussion. And, and that's that's where I'm happy to start going into this year. No, I, I definitely get it. it. There's there's a couple guards every year that you know jump out and I fall in love. I end up falling in love with even though every year I, every year I reset to being Scrooge with guards at like the start of the year where I'm like they all suck and I'll like point out every flaw and pick at every weakness until I have answered every question. I'm very particular about them. But then I have a couple like I'll I'll, I'll end up having Jaden Springer's that I get a soft spot for and you know Jaden Ivy's obviously very good and I know Jaden Springer hasn't hasn't been great so far but. I don't care. I'm I'm okay with it. I'm I'm getting over my guard philosophy. I'm developing and learning. But I mean, I, I think you know creativity and shot making and you know being able to play like blocks and dunks. I think you know being able to play and you know getting nine rebounds against Wake, which is a pretty big team last year. Um, you know that's definitely something that I look for. So I mean, I think that's really good to see. Sure. All right, Chip. We've got one more each. I'm going to let you uh, take it away here with your last guy. Somebody that, by the way, I do like as well. Yes. Um, Dylan is maybe my favorite player in college basketball right now. I, I'm a big fan. He's uh, he's one of those players that you would describe as funky, I think. He kind of he it's it's an interesting thing. Um, you kind of if you let him play his game, people get caught off guard and they don't know how to defend him because his game is so unique and weird where he's really big and very limmy he's six nine he's got long arms got kind of high hips so he's got long legs uh he's really like kind of flexible and agile so i mean he just has a lot of really weird movement patterns and he's really he likes using contact to create like finishing angles and stuff getting downhill but they're not like the normal finishing angles people are trying to create they're really weird off balance type things but he has really good touch and he's super comfortable taking them people just aren't super comfortable preventing those so i think it's a lot of like really kind of weird stuff. And then I also think he might be like the most useful basketball player I've ever watched. Cause like he'll make like two cuts and then like lift out of the corner and then make a 45 cut and seal a driving lane for like a side pick and roll. He wasn't even involved in. And it's just like, he's so good at kind of filling those empty, dangerous spaces on offense. And then on defense, he's just super comfortable switching. He's one of those guys that like, you know, they even almost lock in more, when they're guarding someone that's like not their position and they get a chance to do that. So, I mean, I, I personally just think the switchable defense, the off ball movement offensively, and then like the ability to finish is just super fun with him. And he's one of my favorite players because of that. He's limmy. I'm using that. I'm stealing that term from you. He's limmy. He's, he's like, he's limmy. I'm, I love it. I'm, I'm taking that chip. That's great. Uh, big, big deal in the fan, fan myself. Um, I I think what always stood out to me about his game was how high IQ he was in ways that don't pop in the stat sheet while also being a stat sheet stuffer. That there's something to be said of him kind of satisfying both camps. And, and at Vanderbilt, before an injury and before transfer into Texas, 15-9, 1-1-1, shooting 37% from three. Checks a lot of different boxes from statistical categories. He's going to pop up in a lot of those queries that, you know, nerds like you and I love to run on sports reference or, or in stat, whatever it ends up being. I can't for the life of me figure out what Chris Beard does or is doing necessarily at Texas. I, I know, I know you want to dive into it. I'll let you go first there, but it's frustrating sometimes to watch a prospect because we talk about, we've said it a few times on the podcast, growth and opportunity. And it's hard to know if Dylan's going to get that type of opportunity at Texas because Chris Beard can be really unpredictable with his rotations and with his offensive schemes. Yeah. My least favorite thing about Dylan DeSue is that his favorite school growing up was the university of Texas. So he has gone there and stayed there now for another year, even after the artistic performance that Chris Beard put on this year. I don't know what, like, I tried watching the Dylan DeSue tape. Chris Beard makes a lot of, he's very big on, like, constantly shuffling the guys he has out there. I don't know if this was, like, a joke or something, but, like, any time that he changed any player, Dylan would also change. Like, 
he would play like 10 minutes a game across like 15, 45 second shifts where he'd be out there for two possessions and then he'd take him out for three minutes and then he'd get like three more possessions. And he, like he'd never gotten a rhythm. He would play like two, he would literally sub him in for like one possession and then immediately pull him back out and then like put him back in like two possessions later. It was so bizarre to see. And I genuinely don't know what to think about it. I just have decided that I don't care about his Texas tape. I don't care. I like him. I'm just, I don't care what Chris Beard does with him. I would just like, if I had like a late second round pick, I'd be like, dude, I do not care what you did the last two years. I want you to be on my team. You're fun. You know, he's really smart. He's smart and he's big. Right. Well, and that's like, you can't get better than that. And, and as we go into the IQ stuff, that's what popped my eye at Vanderbilt. And, you know, for all of the trouble that Jerry Stackhouse has had in winning games and handling the media the right way, he runs a pretty NBA-styled offense that has some pop to it. They've had legitimate guards at Vanderbilt in the time that Sue was there. And to me, basketball IQ, at least for an NBA level, shows itself by being creative within the structure that's given to you knowing that, okay, if that guy's going to pick and pop and I'm on the opposite wing, that's my time to 45 cut. Maybe I seal and post off of that. That's creativity. That's IQ and understanding when to do that. Now I understand if I'm picking and popping and I come to the top of the key, the guy on the wing next to me is making that 45 cut. Do I trust that my teammate's going to lift out of the corner so I can throw an immediate reversal pass without having to stop and hold and wait for him to get there knowing the 45 cut is going to occupy the help so he gets an open catch and shoot three. When there's dependability and structure and you can understand the offense, high IQ players pick it up the fastest, thrive on improvisation, and really understand how to take it to the next level. Chris Beard just takes the most talented guys, throws them out onto the floor, and says run around in circles and go as fast as you can. There's not a ton of structure to the offense that he has run. I, I know I've seen his team practice a little bit before. I'm sure it wouldn't be shocking to say that they spend almost all of their time on defense and skill development and not very much on patterned offensive movement and set plays. It's really hard to judge high IQ guys who are more complementary pieces in those types of systems. I think that it's part of the reason why Virginia has always produced some really solid pros who pop at the next level because they are shackled, for lack of a better term, within the college system that they play in. And when they get to the NBA, where we know they're smart players, we know they're instinctual defenders, the freedom that they're given actually helps them a hell of a lot more than anything they were able to show in college. Um, I don't know where I stand on DeSue because I just haven't been able to see much of him last year, and, and that may continue this year. But I do really like him as a basketball player because he checks all of those IQ boxes. He checks those statistical categories. And if his lower body can hold up a little bit after the last year, he may be fine athletically as well. Where We're looking at a guy that is firm sleeper territory for me. Yeah, I mean, Desu is like uh, super – like if you took the funkiest athlete you could like find with at like 6'9", and just gave them like a basketball galaxy brain. Like he's frankly, he's just a basketball genius. Yeah. I think the is. So it's like having him, he's just such a weird player. And like, there's really not many guys that are like him. And I think it's just really cool. And I think that like in the right situation with the right coach and the right system at the NBA level, you can get a lot of value out of what he does on the court, like a ton of value. I, I like him as well. You, you've, you've done good work here today, Chip, with your three uh, sleeper prospects. So I'm going to throw my last one out there. And again, maybe starting to gain some traction in national coverages right now. Um, I said earlier, I look for positive finish to last season as being something that indicates to me, okay, I need to be watching this guy. Koichi Reeves, Florida, up and down freshman year. Minutes were on again, off again within the, the system. He's got a new coach this year, so things may change for better or for worse. Nobody really knows. But final three games of the year, SEC tournament and then the NIT for the Florida Gators, he averaged 16.3 points, 4.3 rebounds, 1.7 steals, 
shot 50% from the field and 39% from three on high volume. He took like 7.7 attempts a game from three over that stretch. He lets it fly. Athletic, really athletic. Big at 6'5 with long arms. Plays more like a shooting specialist, a spot-up threat without sacrificing the athleticism that's going to allow him to be impactful on ball on the defensive end. And he does have some ball hawking tendencies to really shoot passing lanes and make good decisions as a help defender. We both talked even before we came on the podcast today about this Florida Gators team. You and I both really like what, uh, what coach golden has done there in adding transfers and keeping some of the important pieces here. Like this is a potential top 25, if not higher team by the end of the season really really like this group and Reeves being the three and D archetype floor spacer and I put that in quotes because I think it's way too overused but if he's going to be out there to space the floor be athletic and defend he's going to open a lot of eyes in NBA circles to an apples to apples comparison of this is what he does in college this is exactly what we're looking for and what we want a role player to do in the NBA yeah, and I think a big thing to keep in mind with Reeves, kind of like Duron Holmes as well, is you know a lot of times these sleepers they weren't you know highly recruited guys. He was the 45th ranked player RSCI in last year's high school class, so this was like a high end four star. Like this was a pretty highly touted recruit. And yeah, this Florida team is going to be if they stay healthy because we both talked they don't have a ton of depth, but like they're starting five with like Will Richard from Belmont, another phenomenal three and D guy, Colin Castleton, one of the most productive bigs in the country. Alex Fudge, super long, athletic, one of the best athletes in the country. And then, you know, their team is going to be pretty good. And he's going to be able to play off of a lot of scoring gravity around him. And, and, and shout out Kyle Lofton from St. Yes, Bonaventure. Kyle Lofton, yes, from yeah. St. Bonaventure, of course. That's their that's their fifth start. Their, that starting five is very, very, very good. Um, all five of those players are very, very productive college players. So, I mean, it, he's going to have a very good context. He was already kind of a highly recruited guy. So, I mean, he's probably on team's radars in some kind of capacity, right? And he's just got phenomenal context. And like we talked about a bunch of opportunity, he's got to have a great opportunity to show a lot of what he can do this year. Yeah, and and if there's one thing that I do know, we talk about system really mattering. Um, I, I loved Mike White as an X's and O's coach when he was at Louisiana Tech. I kind of fell out of love with it a little bit during his time at Florida new coach now and golden our golden boy coming over from San Francisco analytically minded offense offensive minded coach loves drive and kick three pointers that type of offense suits a guy like Reeves incredibly well to the point where I think his opportunity because he's shown what his strength can be on the basketball floor is going to stay strong because man coach just really loves having that type of player on the floor. Yeah. Yeah. This is going to be another one of those super, super fun teams to watch this year. I've seen them in like the preseason rankings and like the forties and fifties. And it's like, I don't think there's like 15, maybe they're like 15, 20th best team. Cause they're starting five is like one of the top 10 best starting fives in the country. Yeah. I mean, the sec is freaking loaded this yeah. year. Uh, there are probably seven, eight, maybe nine teams that can make yeah. a tournament. Like, I was looking at it the other day. I really like what Missouri has done through the transfer portal and some of the other guys that they have. And mostly, mostly going there. Yeah, like they're going to be a fun watch and, and rapidly improving. So uh, the SEC is going to be tough. But the great part about evaluating prospects in the SEC, they go against great competition on a nightly basis and really good athleticism. That's the one thing that's never a question. If you yeah, can survive can. athletically in the SEC, you're going to be okay in the NBA. Yeah, you can't get away being an underwhelming athlete. I even think, like, honestly, the SEC is so crazy here. I don't even think LSU's roster is that bad at this point. Like, looking at all the transfers they got in, like, they're pretty good. No, LSU's good. Like I said, Missouri is, is going to be solid. Arkansas is probably the best team in the country, or at least, like, top five. Most talented, at least. And, yeah. deep. like, you know, Arkansas, Kentucky, always going to be good. Yeah. Like, you know. Auburn is Auburn, Tennessee, a little underrated. Kentucky, Tennessee's always really State, good. I think has some good things going this year. Like it's, they're going to be good. There's just going to be a very South Carolina. They got GG Jackson, right? Yeah. So, I mean, they're going to be solid. Like everyone in that conference is pretty good. It's going to be fun to watch. Well, Chip, we've got a lot of basketball between now in the 2023 NBA draft. And I know we're going to be 
watching a ton of different guys out there. But thank you for helping us set the stage for at least a couple other sleepers that myself and some of our listeners need to be watching out for. Before we get you out of here, let the people know where can they find you and what do you have going on this time of year? Yeah, um, so you can find me on Twitter and YouTube uh, at ChipJNBA. Um, I also work with Thinking Basketball, so any videos on the Thinking Basketball channel, I help out with a lot of those. And then I've got a really, really big project I've been working on that I'm excited to kind of talk about for this draft season. So, you know, I've been working with a couple people and super excited to be able to announce stuff, a lot of work. So if you're, you know, follow me on Twitter and hopefully you'll be able to see that soon. And it's going to be really, really good year, fun year. Thanks blind for me retweet, on, blind retweet from me when that news comes out because yeah, I know it's going to be great. I absolutely appreciate know. it. But always good to have you here diving into some of the prospects, talk and philosophy. And until next time, folks, thank you so much for tuning in to the Boxing One podcast.